Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. And it's January 11th, 2018. On this week's show, early reports on new gear from the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas, the most surprising Golden Globes in recent memory, the group of industry women coming out against the Me Too movement, and as always, news you can use about upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's show. John and I are coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York. And as always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Now, I'm not quite sure how you could have missed this item, but this past Sunday, the 75th Golden Globes, the awards given by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, were held in Los Angeles. And for the first time I can remember in my lifetime, the substantive story started on the red carpet. Rewinding a little bit, a few weeks before the Globes, the women of Hollywood received an open letter of support published in Time magazine from the Alianza Nacional de Campesinas, a group representing the approximately 700,000 female farm workers in the United States. The letter expressed solidarity with the Hollywood women involved in exposing the sexual abuse allegations against Harvey Weinstein and described experiences of assault and harassment in their own industry. Partially in response, 300 women of the film and TV industry collaborated to found an organization called Times Up, which published its goals in the New York Times on January 1st. Its largest initiative is a $13 million legal defense fund run by the National Women's Law Center to support lower-income women seeking justice for sexual harassment and assault in the workplace. So what does this have to do with the Golden Globes? Well, one of the things that Time's Up called for in this article was for people to wear black on the Globes' red carpet in solidarity with the movement. So the Globes were held a week later, and I have to tell you, that red carpet was really a thing to see. Yes, it was a showy stunt, and I was a bit skeptical myself, but it ended up being a very clever and effective one. Wasn't there like wasn't there something about this before January first though? I feel like we've been talking about people wearing black at the Golden Globes in a form of protest for a while now. It might have been being discussed, but they sort of formally made it part of their platform when they announced the Time's Up movement in the New York Times. Okay. So not a person on that carpet dared to wear a color other than black. And I have to say, we as filmmakers especially understand the power of visual symbolism. This one was striking. And the cleverest part about it was that even if people were asked about their outfits during the red carpet pre-show, it was an entry point to talk about Me Too and the Time's Up movements. Again, for the first time in my life, the discussion on the red carpet felt significant. It wasn't just fluff. Everyone was talking about real issues. And the Time's Up hashtag took off like wildfire as well, with Adweek reporting that out of 3.3 million tweets about the Globes, over 500,000 referenced Time's Up. The substantive content continued into the evening, with many acceptance speeches addressing the disparity in the industry and beyond. This reached its peak when Oprah Winfrey was presented the Cecil B. DeMille Award for Lifetime Achievement. I have to say, I admire Oprah's accomplishments, but I was never really like a big fan of her show or her magazine or any of that work. So I was prepared to fast forward through the speech, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. I sat there jaw dropped and riveted like apparently the rest of the country. Her astonishing speech now has people talking, some more seriously than others, about a Winfrey presidential bid in 2020. Okay, hold it. <laughs> uh, I, I remember, uh, or I was like reading about all these people uh, supporting her for presidency, and you know, I admire Oprah, sure, and she had a, a very moving speech. Um, 
But I was like, are we really thinking about electing another TV personality uh, four years after what happened in 2016? And like, I remember thinking that and, and being like kind of astonished and, and wondering if that was an okay thing to say um, right now. And then Stephen Colbert, like two days ago, basically came out with the same exact sentiment. He was like, uh, you know, let's let's pump the brakes a little bit. Like maybe we should return to a normal sort of government uh, foundation. And then he also he also played this clip of Donald Trump saying maybe back in like in the early O's uh, about how he was thinking about running for president and how if he had to choose anyone for a VP, it would be Oprah Winfrey. I heard that clip on NPR today. Oh, too. my God. So it's just like, let's, yeah, let's slow I down. Agree. I mean, I it's not really the point of this story. And I'm going to get back to the Globes like that's its whole own debate. And I think your points are really interesting. Um and I mean, I wish that tons of the talk after the awards had been about the substance of the speech rather than whether or not Oprah should run for president, which I, you know, haven't thought through well enough to, to form an opinion on. But what I do think is that if more uh, candidates had the kind of hopeful and empowering and actually wide armed um like speeches that she had like it wasn't just speaking to one person or one group of people it was actually pretty I mean she acknowledged women and men and all kinds of people then I think politics would be a lot more yeah uh, but that's that's also her profession you know like that's what she's been doing for how long now so for sure but like everyone who gives a speech at the Globes or any other awards show in one of these acting categories is an actor and like they do you know present public speeches and public like talks all the time and they don't necessarily have these kind of like rousing stirring like really thought-provoking speeches that she had I was I was one of those people that was super impressed um anyway so on a movie related side note if you heard the speech Oprah mentioned Reese Taylor who was an Alabama woman who was kidnapped and raped in the 40s uh, by six white men who were never indicted, which then sparked this wave of organizing for civil rights. And if you're interested in learning more about that story, a documentary called The Rape of Recy Taylor premiered last year at the Venice Film Festival and will be getting released this year. So keep an eye out for it. Now, no matter what you think of Oprah running for president, that speech was a tough act to follow. But Natalie Portman had her own mic drop moment immediately afterward when she came on stage to announce the best director categories and stated... And here are the all-male nominees. Ooh, dip. Which brings us to the actual awards. So Portman presented the award to Guillermo del Toro, who won for directing The Shape of Water. Incidentally, his heart-melting speech was my second favorite of the evening. He kicked it off by saying, and I wish I could do his accent, Since childhood, I've been faithful to monsters. I've been saved and absolved by them. Because monsters, I believe, are patron saints of our blissful imperfection, and they allow and embody the possibility of failing. He seemed kind of, after they cut to him, after she said that, she, he seemed pretty visibly upset over that whole thing. And, it, you know, it's probably it, it's probably not because he thought that Natalie Portman was taking anything away from him, but it's just like, I don't think he was expecting it. So he was like, oh, you know. Um, I can't imagine it was scripted. I don't think anybody was oh, expecting it. Oh, no, it definitely it. wasn't, but... <laughs> I don't know. It's weird that Greta Gerwig didn't at least get a nomination. It's uh Yeah, that was I mean or Dee Reese or Patty Jenkins. I mean, it was a, it was a year for women filmmakers. Anyway, 
I love me some Del Toro and that speech just absolutely melted my heart. His little love letter to monsters. So his film The Shape of Water entered the awards with the most nominations, but three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri walked out with the most statues, specifically four of them, including Best Motion Picture Drama. By the way, Three Billboards was also a big winner at the Australian Oscars last weekend, where it won Best Picture, Best Screenplay, and Best Supporting Actor. It's pretty much what it won at the Golden Globes, too. Yep. Outside of movies, a trend continues as streaming TV was so dominant at the awards this year that Amazon, Hulu, and Netflix took five of the six awards that went to TV series. The Best Drama went to Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale, and the Best Musical or Comedy Series went to Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Mizell. Now, I mentioned last week that I'd been looking forward to the acceptance speech for Get Out, which had been controversially placed in the musical or comedy category, but it lost to Lady Bird, so Lady Bird was acknowledged there. I was wondering if it didn't place as well with the foreign press, since it feels like this very sort of American movie, which would be backed up by the fact that it didn't win any Australian Oscars and it only got a single BAFTA nomination for Daniel Kaluuya as Best Actor. I think that Lady Bird is a more award-friendly movie than Get Out in general. It's just uh, less controversial and more of a feel-good sort of thing, which is what the Academy and these sort of, uh, I guess, award people like. Yeah, so speaking of the BAFTAs or the British Academy Awards, their nominees were announced on Tuesday, with the contenders for Best Picture being Call Me By Your Name, Dunkirk, The Shape of Water, Three Billboards, and Darkest Hour. Each of those films' directors was also nominated for Best Director, except for The Darkest Hour, where its director, Joe Wright, was knocked off in favor of Denis Villeneuve for Blade Runner 2049. And that's just about all the awards news anyone can handle for one week. So have you read about the uh, counter Me Too movement yet? We talked a little bit about this morning, but did you get a chance to look at it any more since? We, oui, I uh, checked it out. It's pretty crazy. So while the Me Too movement had a big night at the Golden Globes on Sunday night, it seems that one group of famous women weren't particularly impressed. Now, who, you might ask, would be so brash and insensitive as to go against their entire sex for the sake of voicing their opinion? Why, the French, of course. Bien sûr. The most notable figure of the group was actress Catherine Deneuve, who joined more than 100 other French women in entertainment, publishing, and academic fields Tuesday and releasing a letter in the pages of the newspaper Le Monde and on its website, arguing that the movement has, as the New York Times describes it, quote, gone too far by publicly prosecuting private experiences and creating a totalitarian climate. So the French have their own version of the movement called, and I'm going to really messed this one up, Blanca ton porc? In English, that means expose your pig, which I think is kind of funny. The letter begins, quote, rape is a crime, but insistent or clumsy flirting is not a crime, nor is gallantry a chauvinist aggression. As a result of the Weinstein affair, there has been a legitimate realization of the sexual violence women experience, particularly in the workplace, where some men abuse their power. It was necessary, but now this liberation of speech has been turned on its head. End quote. They contend that the hashtag MeToo movement has led to a campaign of public accusations that have placed undeserving people in the same category as sex offenders without giving them a chance to defend themselves. Quote, this expedited justice already has its victims, men prevented from practicing their profession as punishment, forced to resign, etc., while the only thing they did wrong was touching a knee, trying to steal a kiss, 
or speaking about intimate things at a work dinner or sending messages with sexual connotations to a woman whose feelings were not mutual. They go even further by insisting the movements instead serve the interests of the enemies of sexual freedom, of religious extremists, of the worst reactionaries, and of those who believe that women are separate beings, children with the appearance of adults, demanding to be protected. They write that a woman can, in the same day, lead a professional team and enjoy being the sexual object of a man without being a quote-unquote promiscuous woman, nor a vile accomplice of patriarchy. So basically, we're dealing with a pretty interesting cultural divide here, I think. The French are a famously passionate people, and what they're saying is that the movements actually repress sexual expression and freedom. They do not, however, define where the line is between those quote-unquote clumsy sexual advances and sexual assault. Understandably, female industry professionals here in the U.S. are pissed. Asia Argento, who has accused Harvey Weinstein of raping her, took to Twitter to say, Catherine Deneuve and other French women tell the world how their interiorized misogyny has lobotomized them to the point of no return. Ooh. It's, it's, it's a pretty heated <laughs> argument, and I mean, there's a lot of reason why that is. But Deneuve also has a history of protecting male abusers. As last March, she defended her one-time director, Roman Polanski, even though he pleaded guilty in 1977 to having sex with a 13-year-old girl and has been accused by two other women of rape when they were underage. I mean, come on. So in concluding the letter, the writers return to the concept of self-victimization and a call for women to accept the pitfalls that come with freedom. Quote, accidents that can affect a woman's body do not necessarily affect her dignity and must not, as hard as they can be, necessarily make her a perpetual victim. Because we are not reducible to our bodies, our inner freedom is inviolable, and this freedom that we cherish is not without risks and responsibilities. So these are some pretty inflammatory remarks. How does this strike you, Liz, being a woman in the industry? I mean, it's tricky. I don't feel like I really prepared a response to this letter and it's something I have to think about. I think, you know, in some ways they have valid points. Like we definitely don't want overall a chilling effect or speech to be, you know, curbed because people are afraid to say things they want to say. On the other hand, I actually... I think that this letter and the whole like counter movement is very counterproductive and self-defeating because I really believe this is not just a women's issue. Like I, I wish that sets feel safe and comfortable for everyone and that like personal, you know, interactions of this nature can just be left off, left out of the workplace so that we can all focus on our our creative goals. So for me, it's like, I don't understand why you would go out of your way to actually like stop these stories and try to stop this discussion when ho- hopefully the ultimate like product of these discussions are that sets end up being safer and more comfortable for everyone involved. Yeah, I think that the the main focus of it being about, you know, sexual freedom, it's just another way to look at the whole thing. You know, it's there's another part of this article mentioned how in Switzerland they're passing legislature that requires like two parties of a sexual tryst to actually acknowledge that they're having a sexual tryst before they engage in it. So, like, that is, in this case, some pretty progressive legislature, but it's just, it's 
it is a very tricky subject. It's what where's that line drawn between sexual harassment and quote unquote clumsy flirting? Um, and is it always totally, you know, is it is it never acceptable for a man to uh, flirt with a woman in the workplace or on set? Or vice versa. Like I'm a, a very affectionate person. You know, I'm a hugger, that kind of thing. And I mean, John Lasseter from Pixar was basically like, you know, had to take a leave of absence in what sounded like what boiled down to like him being an aggressive hugger. And I felt like, well, you know, maybe I need to start questioning some of my own actions. But actually, I feel fine about that. Like, I'd rather people be thinking twice before, like doing something like this than that they don't. But I, you know, when the more we talk about it, I feel like that letter is coming down and basically saying like, well, you know, you now have the freedom to wear a miniskirt and you might look hot. And if you wear a miniskirt, you should probably expect that, you know, someone might grab your ass. Yeah, it's I feel weird. like that's super backwards. That like, whole that's old thinking sentiment about like you have to accept the responsibilities that come with like looking good <laughs> is uh, is a little backwards. But it doesn't feel up to date with sort of the larger way the world is going. And I'm glad for it. Okay, let's let's move on from Me Too. Yeah, Me Too. And now here's Charles Hain with the gear news for the week. Hey, everybody. So CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, is in full swing in Las Vegas right now, which means that a whole lot of, like, consumer electronic-y news is rolling out. Now, it's not as big a deal as NAB, which is going to be in Vegas in April, and No Film School always covers, which is when all the, like, film and broadcast stuff comes out. But to be honest, for indie filmmakers, there's still a whole bunch of tools that we'll end up using that are getting announced at the Consumer Electronics Show because it's a hallmark of indie filmmaking to take consumer tools and try and get professional results out of it. So let's dig in. So far, the biggest news for filmmakers out of CES has been from DJI, and it's about their camera stabilizers. So last year, they released the Ronin 2. It impressed pretty much everybody, but it has this $7,000 price tag, which goes right up head-to-head against the um, normally pricier Movi Pro, and that surprised a lot of people. DJI usually competes at least a little bit on price, and is usually a little cheaper than their competitors, and going for the full $7,000 on the Ronin 2 versus I think it's $7,500 on the Movi Pro was kind of bold, although the Ronin 2 does hold twice as much weight. So in some ways, it's kind of a competitor for the $20,000 Movi Pro XL, but it doesn't offer everything that platform offers. It now makes a lot more sense as they've released the smaller Ronin S gimbal to occupy the section of the market that they left behind by taking the full Ronin upmarket with version 2. So the Ronin S is going to be available in two flavors, one for your DSLR and a smaller one for mirrorless, and designed for one-hand operation, although it is available with a dual handle if you like. And it's all probably going to come in around a grand, maybe a little bit more, though price isn't out yet. On top of that, they came out with the impressive new Osmo Mobile 2, which is a smartphone gimbal. It's made out of nylon, it has up to 15 hours of battery life, and it can also work as an external battery for your phone. So it's going to be really popular, I think, on every film scout where you're planning out your more complicated gimbal moves. I also I also see it as a tool where a lot of people who are making their movies on mobile are going to stabilize with the Osmo Mobile 2. Um, our next bit of news is a little bit DJI adjacent, and that's that GoPro is leaving drones. 
So they've discovered it's actually hard to make objects fly in the air without crashing. So they're going to let the drone business go and lay off a bunch of people and sort of refocus on their core business. Last year, they came out with the Karma, which was a drone that at one point achieved the number two spot in its horizontal band of price point or whatever the business term was. But they were falling from the sky and they lost a lot of market share after like nearly hitting operators falling on them. In addition, CNBC has also announced that GoPro is teaming up with JP Morgan to go looking for a possible partner or purchaser, though it's currently unclear if there are any buyers interested in the company. It is dark times at GoPro at the moment, with a product that is having a really hard time standing out in a super crowded market. 2018 is going to be a make or break year for the company, but hopefully we'll see some moves and some of the innovation that brought us the GoPro in the beginning that'll bring a really interesting, innovative, new wave to the company. I hope they don't go away. I like GoPro. I feel warmly towards them. They just don't know how to make a drone. Yeah, I was just going to, I wrote that article up, and the other thing that was interesting uh, about their whole downward spiral um, is that this year, uh, their CEO is taking has has cut his salary to one dollar. So I mean, it's not like you know they're doing anything bad at the company in terms oh, yeah, of it's like not... you know these layoffs are just a, a necessary thing. But I was also reading some comments on the article uh, that I wrote, and they were like, "Well, you know, I have a GoPro. Like the problem is they keep coming out with like the GoPro Hero Four, the GoPro Hero Five, the GoPro Hero Six. And they're all basically the same camera. It's just like there's no improvement on the sensor. There's nothing that really like makes one a marketed improvement from the other one. Which makes me wonder, is this what's going to come to all camera companies once we reach like peak image quality and there's like nowhere to go? We'll see. They, they have tried to innovate with the 360 Fuse thing, mm. but 360 isn't really taking off the yep. way anybody wants it to. No. But he's badass. He's taking zero dollars. It's not like that guy who um, gave himself a big bonus and then took Twinkie bankrupt or whatever. <laughs> that guy was a dick. I don't know that story in that much detail. If that guy wasn't a dick, I apologize. But he seemed like a dick selling off Twinkie. If anyone knows if the Twinkie owner's a dick, please let us know. Yeah, Twitter at Charles Hain. Uh Next up, say hello to the new, even more filmmaker-focused GH5S. So... Next up, this is a pretty fascinating revision released by Panasonic to the popular GH5, the new GH5S, which is specifically targeted at film and video makers. Featuring most of the items we know and love about the GH5, 4K, 10-bit, great image quality, it's built actually around a lower-resolution sensor. But by going to a lower resolution, it can have bigger photo sites, and that allows it to have better low-light sensitivity. So, stealing some technology and design from the Varicam and the EVA-1, the GH5S now has a dual-native ISO, meaning it can be set to either 800 or 2500 ISO natively, and it's going to be a real low-light machine with that 2500 ISO setting. Especially impressive since the GH5S has the smaller MFT sensor, not the larger Super 35 sensor you see in the Varicam and the EVA-1. So... The move sacrifices something filmmakers don't care a lot about, which is still image quality. Your stills will still be nice. It's just not going to be like 6,000 pixels in your stills. And for most filmmakers, most of your stills are scout stills and Instagram stills. It's going to be fine. You're just not going to make billboards out of the images anymore. Um, But it replaces that feature that we're without with something that filmmakers love, which is low-light sensitivity. 
Interestingly, they also pulled out image stabilization, which is going to be frustrating for handheld shooters, those folks out there who are literally just holding it all on their own with no stabilization. But interestingly, there's a really popular, I think ShareGrid's thing, or maybe it was KitSplit, the most popular combo last year was a Sony A7S on a Ronin. And like a mirrorless camera that's good in low light on a stabilizer is a super popular combination. And I think that was the thinking Panasonic was going through, is if we can strip out the stabilization and get ourselves more low light, most people who want a really stabilized handheld shot are going to use an external stabilizer anyway. They probably didn't know about the Ronin-S, but, the, but that's a very competitive market, the mirrorless stabilizer market, with the Moza and the Ziyun and the Tilta, and there's so many options out there. So I think this is a really exciting camera. I think it's a really... Uh, it's a clear move from Panasonic aimed directly at Sony. Um, so the mirror mark, mirrorless market is really heating up. So a few questions about this. One, what does the S stand for? <laughs> because G, like this is the less important question, obviously, but the GH5S and the Ronin S, is that like a... Is Ooh. there something going there? Like, oh, are they like hanging out? Are well, they partying I'm together? I'm not sure. Too, yes? Yeah, because didn't you say also, I guess we haven't released it yet, but um, some, who, who is making software? Uh, Atmos is making a monitor specifically for the GH5S. Oh, Atmos so, already has support for the GH5S's new format oh, okay. built in. Right. So maybe just a coincidence, but maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Uh, my second question is... Now, what would you choose between the GH5S and the A7S II if you had to make that choice? All right, so I'll answer the first question first. I think S is for speed. Okay, cool. I think that's why Sony does the A7S, and I think that's why they went the GH5S. Um, hmm. I would absolutely, I already would probably go GH5, plain GH5 yeah. over A7S II. So now, in this case, if I were buying today, and my main focus was video. Mm hmm. GH5S would probably win. Even I'm an X-T2 shooter, mm. but it would probably even win over the X-T2 for that 10-bit 4K internal video and a 2500 native ISO. It would be really hard. Mm. I shoot a lot of stills, obviously, for all the reviews on the site, so that's all X-T2. But yeah, if I were buying today, I think that GH5S probably wins all contests. So beats the GH5, beats the uh, Alpha series for the most part. Well, the nice thing about it is it's MFT mount, so you get all those nice MFT mount lenses, which is like a whole lot of manufacturers making lenses there, whereas Sony, they use their proprietary mount. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting when we get to 2018, at the end of 2018, and we see if the GH5S is renting more than the A7S 2 or 3. But yeah, I mean, I'm I, uh, I'm a big fan of the Varicam and the native 5000 ISO. We just did some testing on the EVA1, and the 2500 ISO is great. So if this 2500 ISO is anywhere as good, I think this is the mirrorless camera that's going to win this year, is my guess. There you go. Um, and then last up, weird news. Amid all the crazy buzz for Bitcoin <laughs> with, like, you know, the Long Island Ice Tea Company renaming themselves the Long Island Blockchain Company and their stock shooting through the roof. Kodak has announced that they're going to be offering Kodak coin later in the year. So I, when I saw it, I totally thought it was an April Fool's Day joke, but it is real. And the plan is actually going to be building a platform for photographers that uses the blockchain to police IP called Kodak One, and then using Kodak coin 
to pay people for licensing IP. So since Kodak dropped the ball in digital, like they invented digital photography in the 70s, and now they're not really like a big player in digital, it's really exciting to see Kodak taking a big, bold risk like this. And I actually think it might be a great idea. Because here's the thing. Currently with Bitcoin, there are all these miners out there doing these like complicated math equations just to earn more Bitcoins. But the math equations don't like benefit society. What I think Kodak's going to do is they're going to have Kodak coin. And if you want to mine Kodak coin, I think you're going to have to troll the web looking for copyright violations. So I think like if you want to be a Kodak miner, you'll have a machine and it's always on the lookout all over the Internet, skimming Instagram, looking or looking at blogs, trying to see who stole photos. If that's the plan, if Kodak is like, oh, miners should be doing useful activity, that's awesome. And every photographer should be excited about it. And hopefully they'll also eventually do video. And, uh, yeah, so I think that's – I think this actually might be my most favorite blockchain story. Uh, and I initially thought it was a joke. I still don't understand Bitcoin. I mean, I don't think Bitcoin is actually uh, going to be the currency of the future. And I think it's way overvalued at the moment. We'll see. But the blockchain is actually kind of an interesting technology. Well, thanks, Charles. Oh, my pleasure. I'll see everybody next week. And now moving on to Ask No Film School. This week, we got a question via Twitter, which is something that you can do, listeners, if you'd like, is you can ask us questions on Twitter and we'll respond. This week, Chris Holloway asks, I have a question regarding my indie documentary. I want to hold a private event slash screening and charge for tickets. Does this lessen my chances of getting into festivals, of getting distribution? What do you think, Liz? You're the doc expert. Well, I think it's a great question, Chris. And first of all, I want to congratulate you on finishing your film. That's the biggest feat of all. Uh, I think this is a common dilemma for doc people. After all, you've finished the film. You have all these local people, crew, friends, family that you want to celebrate with. And you want to start recouping all the money you spent on making it. I can totally relate having been in the exact same position with my first feature, Doc Jericho's Echo. What I decided to do at the time was exactly what you're suggesting, hold a secret world premiere screening at a privately owned theater and charge for tickets. And I have to say that sold out screening was one of the best nights of my life. But as with most of our Ask No Film School questions, it really depends on your circumstances because the short answer is that yes, doing this the wrong way could affect your festival or distribution rollout. Most of the major festivals like Sundance will require a world premiere. So you may wanna wait until you find out if you get into one of those before making any decisions about this. Now, any festival would prefer some kind of premiere, be it a national or a regional premiere. So think about your festival strategy. If you aim to have your festival premiere at a regional fest and you live in a different region, holding a somewhat under-the-radar screening beforehand shouldn't be a conflict at all. By under-the-radar, I mean that if you have enough local contacts and support, you should consider spreading the word interpersonally rather than trying to get press around the event since you'll want to save press opportunities for festivals and distribution. You may even want to bill it more like a work in progress or sneak preview screening to make sure that it doesn't conflict with future opportunities. So good luck, Chris, and let us know how it goes. Yeah, this is something that I've actually been thinking about, too, because one of the perks for my Kickstarter was like that uh, if you give a certain amount of money, you'll be invited to the quote unquote premiere of the short. Um, and I feel like shorts and docs have a similar end goal which is to get into festivals and they both deal with that sort of thing where like if it's not the world premiere you might not get in so I'm pretty sure what I'm gonna do is do exactly what Liz said and like 
use it as a test screening um that way you can get feedback on it too you know it's it's productive to um i mean people people we we, had, we did a whole episode about the benefits of like having test screenings so uh, you know if you can do both at the same time it'll be productive for you and uh you can make changes on your doc still if you want to and now moving on to some movies opening this week so last week, I guess we we missed a uh, a movie that's coming to VOD. It's called Blame. It came out on January fifth, and Blame is the debut feature from Quinn Shepard, a woman who, at just the young age of fifteen, decided to start writing her first feature film as a high school student in New Jersey. Instead of film school, she opted to spend her would-be college years producing, directing, editing, and starring in the project. Seven years later, in 2017, the film made its premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival, where co-star Nadia Alexander won the award for Best Actress. Blame is a dark psychological teen drama about two rivals competing for the role of Abigail in their drama class performance of The Crucible, the popular girl versus the outcast. As the drama teacher, played by Chris Messina, starts to take sides and vicious rumors spread throughout the school, themes from the classic text begin to seep into their lives. As Sophia Harvey describes it, through teenage deceit is a tale as old as time. Shepard brings a fresh and emotionally raw perspective to the film. You can read Sophia's whole interview with the director at nofilmschool.com. And coming to Amazon Prime Instant on January 12th is Wonderstruck, which is Todd Haynes's latest film that premiered at Cannes earlier this year and was nominated for the Palme d'Or. This is not Wonder Wheel. This is Wonderstruck. Nor is it Wonder, which also came out last year. Let's get more creative with these titles. It is the story of a young boy in the Midwest that's told simultaneously with a tale about a young girl in New York from 50 years ago as they both seek the same mysterious connection. The older story is shot in black and white, while the new story is told in color. Of the script, Haynes said, It was something I'd never done before, with the imagination of kids, and it's constructed like a true mystery. The film stars Julianne Moore and a pair of wonderful child actors in Millicent Simmons and Oakes Fegley. Emily Booter covered the film's P&I panel back in France, and you can read it up on the site. That reminds me that I heard the film's DP talking about shooting it at New York Film Festival, and I'll try to write that up this week, too. And coming to Netflix on January 12th is The Polka King. I've been waiting for the chance to talk about this movie for a long time. I saw The Polka King at Sundance almost a year ago to the day, and I loved it. The film didn't do too well at the festival and is only now getting a release, but if you love Jack Black as much as I do, specifically in this case, Nacho Libre Jack Black, then you have to check this one out on Netflix one night. The film is based off the true story of a small-town Pennsylvania polka singer named Jan LaVon, who essentially developed a plan to scam old people into giving him money so that he could get rich and keep his polka business going. JB, of course, plays John LaVon. He's singing, he's dancing, he's doing all the shtick that he's great at. And there are also hilarious performances from Jenny Slate, Jason Schwartzman, and Jackie Weaver. Unrest is coming to Netflix on January 15th. This was one of Emily's favorite movies at Sundance last year. One day, Jennifer Bray woke up to find that her life had been stolen from her. The newly engaged Harvard PhD student couldn't write her own name. She couldn't get out of bed. When she tried, she would collapse on the ground in pain and under exhaustion. She could barely talk. She couldn't even draw a circle. Despite extensive tests and examinations, doctors came up empty-handed. In a moment of desperation, Bray picked up a camera, and she began documenting her struggle from her bedroom. 
As she began documenting her struggle from her bedroom, her claustrophobic world opened up. She shared her videos online and found an extensive community of people with similar symptoms. Their diagnosis? A little-known disorder called myalgic encephalomyelitis, commonly referred to as chronic fatigue syndrome. For her own sake and for that of her diseased cell victims, she decided to make a documentary. But how to make a movie when she couldn't leave her own bed? What's more, she didn't even know a single filmmaker. Miraculously, she assembled a global production team and filmed nearly all of Unrest, which premiered at Sundance, as I said, without leaving her bed, utilizing inventive technological methods so that she could direct the film remotely. Brea raised over $200,000 on Kickstarter by mobilizing the international Emmy community, which wanted its story told for the first time on a public stage. You can read Emily's interview with Brea, where she details her incredible story, on nofilmschool.com. One of my favorite films from TIFF 2016 is finally got a theatrical release last week and is hopefully still playing at a theater near you. Palestinian filmmaker Mayazalun Hamoud's debut feature, In Between, is a drama focused on the life of three Arab-Israeli girlfriends from different religious backgrounds who live together in Tel Aviv. We rarely hear from Palestinian filmmakers, but this film explores a theme relevant basically in any modern society and particularly dominant in the Middle East, which is how to reconcile tradition with contemporary urban life, including loves and jobs and social lives. It's one of those movies that just feels really fresh, relevant, and cool, as did the filmmaker herself when I recorded a podcast with her back at TIFF, where she talked about having to use non-actors because there really is no big pool of Palestinian actors to pull from. And Hamoud's own story really became part of the movie's story, as after that premiere, she was both hand-chosen by Isabel Huppert to receive the Young Talents Award at Cannes, and was also issued the first religious fatwa, or legal order against her and her film, in Palestinian history. We'll link to my interview with this badass director in the podcast post. And coming to theaters this Friday is The Post. Steven Spielberg's latest film is dropping right in time for Oscar season, and it features all the usual suspects. It's almost like if they were following a recipe for Oscar. Start with your base of Spielberg, then pepper in Meryl Streep and a little Tom Hanks, mixed with some period piece drama. Oh, I don't know, maybe about journalism? Worked for Spotlight, right? The movie's about a cover-up that spanned four U.S. presidents, which pushed the country's first female newspaper publisher, played by Streep, and a hard-driving editor to join an unprecedented battle between journalist and government. It's certainly a timely film in more than one way. And I look forward to eating that cake. And now moving on to some upcoming deadlines for grants and other opportunities. The LEF Moving Image Fund production and post-production grant has a deadline on January 26th. This is designed specifically for New England filmmakers with film budgets under $400,000. They say that the strongest proposals will be those that clearly articulate the ways in which the proposed project embodies the program's funding criteria. A maximum of six grants of $15,000 each will be awarded to projects in the production phase, and a maximum of three grants of $25,000 each will be awarded to projects in the post-production phase. In order to be eligible for the post-production support, however, the project for which you are applying must have received previous LEF support. Screen Australia's feature film production program has a deadline on January 22nd. If you're an Australian-based filmmaker, you have got to get in touch with Screen Australia. The government film agency throws down major funds for low-budget features, documentaries, and large-format programs, including up to 65% of your feature film budget if it meets the criteria. And January 28th is the deadline for the Doha Film Institute Grants Program. The Doha Institute seeks out new cinematic voices from Qatar as well as from around the world. 
the grants for the Qatar-based filmmakers are rolling, and that January 28th deadline is for international applicants. You can apply for funding for development, production, or pre-production depending on where you're based. Some apply to Middle East and North African residents, and some apply to non-Middle East and North Africa residents. The Institute's approach is to champion projects whose thrust is to explore, expand, and cultivate authentic storytelling with a keen interest in propelling forward contemporary work that demonstrates a deep understanding of the specific possibilities of the medium of cinema. And in our festival deadlines this week, we are focusing on the Southern Hemisphere of the United States. First up is the Nashville Film Festival, which has a deadline tomorrow, January 12th. This one takes place May 10th to the 19th, 2018 in Nashville, Tennessee. It offers a whopping $65,000 in cash and in-kind sponsor prizes to filmmakers, with winners selected by industry power players, including studio reps, producers, and fellow filmmakers. And the winning short films in the narrative animated and doc short film competitions are eligible for Academy Award considerations. And the New Orleans Film Festival has a deadline on January 12th. It's the early bird deadline. The festival takes place in New Orleans from October 17th to the 25th in 2018. It is one of the few film festivals that is Oscar qualifying in all three Academy accredited categories, narrative short, documentary short, and animated short, like the Nashville Film Festival. It was recognized by Movie Maker Magazine as one of the top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee every single year since 2012. The Palm Springs International Short Fest has a deadline on January 15th. This takes place in Palm Springs, California from June 19th to the 25th. The seven-day competitive festival screens approximately 330 films from 47 countries in a series of 90-minute programs. In a step we've seen from many short fests of late, and something that we discussed earlier in the episode, Palm Springs Short Fest no longer prioritizes premiere status when selecting films for competition. And it's an Academy Award qualifying festival. The festival has 20 competitive categories with prize money, film stock, and production services valued over $70,000. And in weekly words of wisdom. I said I was done with the words news, but I have one more note to mention here in our weekly words of wisdom segment. The American Society of Cinematographers, or ASC, awards were announced on Tuesday, and four of their nominees, Roger Deakins, Hoyt Van Hoytema, Dan Lauston, and Rachel Morrison, were joined by Janusz Kaminski and Robert Elswit in the Hollywood Reporter's excellent annual DP Roundtable discussion. Eric Lures wrote it up on No Film School, and I was particularly struck by something Janusz Kaminski said about collaboration. If you know his name, you probably know he's a frequent collaborator of Steven Spielberg's. This past year, they shot The Post, which we just talked about, and this coming year's Ready Player One will mark their 18th collaboration. While I know that collaborations are a cornerstone of our industry, I would have guessed that such a longtime partnership could be somewhat creatively stifling because you're so in your comfort zone and there are certain expectations of your collaborative work. What I found interesting was that, according to Kaminsky, in this case, it's just the opposite. It's particularly because he's so comfortable with Spielberg that he knows he can exit his comfort zone and try something new creatively, knowing that his director will back him up. He said, quote, when you work with collaborators who encourage you to take chances, it's the ideal thing. So this definitely gave me some food for thought about my search for future collaborators. Does that mean you want me to collaborate with you on your next feature documentary? Do you encourage me to take chances or do you just tell me I'm wrong all the time? I mean, that's what you got to figure out, right? Interesting. Maybe I've... if I tell you you're wrong all the time, it'll actually help you in the long run. I'll take it into consideration. Listeners, if you have any opinion on that, feel free to let us know. 
my insight this week uh, is something that we've actually talked about quite a bit in the past couple of weeks, um, but I think it's important to highlight, and that's just how dominant the mirrorless cameras were in 2017. Charles touched a bit on it in the gear section, but he also wrote up an article in which he analyzed the rental company ShareGrid's rental statistics from 2017, and he found some pretty interesting results. Of course, the most looked at product on the site was the Alexa Mini, but its price made it too expensive for most users, making it mostly an object of lust rather than a practical use. The most rented item of 2017, however, was the Sony A7S II. As Charles said in the article, this makes sense, of course, since it is a great combination of very popular, affordable to an owner-operator, but just expensive enough to be worth renting if you are only going to use it a few times a year. It hits that sweet spot where it's affordable to build a package for the dedicated, but too pricey for the rare user. Mirrorless in general, largely the A7S II and the Panasonic GH units, were very dominant this year over DSLRs, which might seem obvious. They have 1.3 times the rental volume and 1.7 times the revenue. While this isn't a surprise considering how frequently clients still request DSLR quality footage, it's likely many of those productions are able to deliver the same or better results from mirrorless, and these rental numbers say they are likely doing so. So, I think it's uh, time to retire the DSLRs perhaps, in 2018. Didn't we do an episode last year called Is DSLR Dead? Uh, probably. And uh, now I have to say it's looking like it. Well, I actually wrote the answer to Charles's ShareGrid article in one about KitSplit, which is the other big online rental community. And it turns out that when KitSplit published its results of the most popular gear from 2017, the A7S II was also the most rented item on that platform, so the A7S II, mirrorless, really hot camera. Interestingly, the number two item on the kit split list as most rented in 2017 were still Canon 5Ds, but it does show like a general shift. And I think both of these articles are really worth looking at if you're considering investing in some gear this year because uh, you may want to look at what's hot in the rental market to see what might be worth investing in. Yeah, I imagine that the 5D or whatever, are they're still popular just because people are comfortable with them, you know? So uh, maybe it's time to apply Liz's words of wisdom to your own camera purchasing habits and break out of your comfort zone to get a better quality image. Uh, it's funny because earlier in the episode, uh, Charles said that he actually would buy the GH series over the A7S, um, so it does make me wonder why, you know, A7S is the most popular camera on both of those sites. Maybe it's just because it has the uh, better low light sensitivity, um, which is a major, major thing for most filmmakers. I mean, it might also be because those are both like community rental sites. So they're all, they're both like sites where the, the merchandise on the sites are provided by people just like you and me who own them and if you own a gh5 like you might be using it all the time and it's not that big of an investment so more people might own their own gh5 whereas they a7s2 is in the higher price bracket and so they might need to rent that unit not sure all right so wrapping up i am excited to attend one of my favorite annual events the cinema eye honors tonight Good luck to all the nominees, and we will bring you the results next week on the show, which will also be our special Sundance preview episode. 
uh, next Thursday, while you're listening, we'll actually be en route to Park City when the show goes up. So, woohoo! It's that time of year again. Meanwhile, for next Monday's podcast... Next Monday's podcast will be part three of our Best of 2017 series with great advice from a bunch of the roundtables we hosted at festivals like South By and the aforementioned Sundance last year. So there will be clips from discussions with two groups of short filmmakers from our episodes How to Get Your Short into Sundance and How to Get Your Midnight Short into South by Southwest, as well as a DP roundtable entitled The Shots That Almost Killed Us and more. So if you like these best ofs, there's a couple more before we get this whole new slate of interviews from Sundance. I'm so stoked for both things. I'm stoked for the final wrap-up episode, and I'm stoked to, yeah, put a whole bunch of new episodes in the can in Park City. So, as always, you can read about everything we talked about in this podcast with links to our articles and more on nofilmschool.com. And we'd love it if you would subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, stay in touch. Send us those Ask No Film School questions and other lovely comments. I'm at LizFilm on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. He's at Jim underscore Charles is at Charles Hain, and we're all at No Film School. See you next Thursday from Park City. Bye.